0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and you open up to the book of Hosea, good luck. Now, actually open up the book of Matthew and then take a turn left into the Old Testament and you'll go to through 11 books until you get to Hosea. We are in Hosea. As you're looking for that, a couple things to note. Number one, in the back seat of the chair around you is probably one of these. It's a sermon card. It just explains all the sermons that are coming up through Christmas, basically. And then the events that are coming up, it's nice just to put on your fridge, keeping your Bible. On the back side is a Bible reading plan. We do this over four quarters, and you read the whole Bible. It's like uh, five days a week, not seven. So, and it's pretty diverse. So, it goes around Old Testament, New Testament. Um, And so, that is for you. We'll have a new one in January for that quarter. Also, if you came in in the back, there's a booklet. So, I used to do these a lot, I haven't done it for a while. But this is a booklet for our series over 12 weeks. It provides some kind of introductory material and then has study questions if you're involved in a road group or if you just want to do your own personal study and a couple appendices with extra information. So there's some in the back. Uh, We'll print more if you don't get one. But make sure you grab one of those. Those are for you. We are beginning a new series that is titled The Twelve. And we are going to work our way through 12 different books of the Bible in 12 weeks. It is very ambitious, but I think it'll be enjoyable. Most of the time, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we teach basically verse by verse through books of the Bible or verse by verse through single chapters of the Bible. Um, And so for the first time, at least in my tenure as a pastor, we're going to teach an entire book. Uh, in one sermon, 12 different times, and we'll have a little break for Christmas, uh, but it's going to be a little bit different. And because of that, we are knowingly going to obviously not hit every single detail nor every single verse in the different books we teach. Uh, We'll intentionally focus on the high points. We're going to hit somewhat of an overview of the message and then try to explain its place in redemptive history. As it relates to the gospel. Now, this is going to be a different way to teach. It's a different way to learn. Um, And our hope is that over the next 12 weeks, uh, as you experience this, that you will increase your understanding of the Bible uh, and hopefully uh, your appreciation for Christ in the Old Testament. So, how the one story of God works over these 66 books. 39 the Old Testament, 27 the New, uh, but also just our understanding of books that maybe you've never read or haven't read very often. By way of introduction, the Old Testament has 39 books, in case you didn't know that, and it is basically divided into five different sections. And there are the first five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and then there are 12 books of history. And that's Joshua and Judges and the Kings and Samuel and Chronicles and Esther's included in there. Um, And then you have five books of wisdom. Job is considered a book of wisdom. Uh, The Psalms and the Proverbs. And then we just went through Ecclesiastes a few months ago. uh, And also uh, the Song of Solomon. And then lastly you have the 17 prophets. And those 17 prophets are divided into two sections, which are the major prophets and the minor prophets, or the five major prophets, which would include Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, also written by Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and Daniel. And then the last 12 are called the minor prophets, and those will be Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. There will not be a test on that, but... You should memorize those. So these books are labeled minor not because they are less significant in what they teach. It's because they're smaller. And they're just shorter than the major prophets. Ancient scribes actually preserved these twelve books on one big scroll. And so historically it's been called the Book of the Twelve. Which hence the title The Twelve. Now I would argue, and this is my humble but deadly accurate opinion, that the 12 minor prophets are arguably some of the most ignored books in the Bible. Uh, You may have never even heard of some of these names, and perhaps you've heard some of the stories in them, like Jonah. We're familiar with that story typically. But part of the reason why they are ignored is because the entire Old Testament is largely ignored, or I would say takes second place to the New Testament. We kind of look at it like JV and Varsity. Uh, I don't really want to watch JV, but I love to watch Varsity, which is the New Testament, right? Much more important. Um, I would argue that the New Testament, first and foremost, is not superior, and it was not given in order to supplant the Old Testament and just do away with it. Uh, Rather, the New Testament was written to provide very definitive answers in 40 years of history, which is generally what it covers, very definitive answers in 40 years of history to the questions of the Old Testament that were asked over 4,000 years of history. So we have to understand the questions in order to understand The answers, or I appreciate how Pastor Mark Dever says it, he says the Old Testament presents a riddle to which Jesus Christ is the answer, and you won't understand the answer nearly as well without understanding the riddle. So we need the Old Testament. It is foundational to our faith, but unfortunately it is pretty ignored, and so we come into one story in like chapter, you know, 15 out of... 45 chapters and we forget the first part. So the fact that um, everything is one story is something that Jesus himself taught. It's interesting at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus kind of hiding himself is walking along with some very despondent disciples who just were in Jerusalem, just went through the weekend of the crucifixion and all that stuff and they're very sad. They're walking back to the Uh, town of Emmaus, where they're from, and Jesus kind of walks up next to them, but he doesn't, he's like, whoa, 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 not Jesus, you don't know, and he's like, why are you guys so sad, and they're like, what have you been living under a rock, It's my translation, well, you don't know what happened, all these bad things happened, I thought he was the king, we thought he was the Messiah, and so Jesus tells them, look, this was all supposed to happen, and he eventually tells them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Old Testament, must be fulfilled. He ultimately says that everything was about me and he gave them the greatest history lessons ever, ever. Right? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which would be, he opened their minds to understand the Old Testament pointing to himself throughout. And so the whole Bible is really about Jesus, and it's all one story, and we need to understand every chapter. And so to prepare us all and to open our own minds to this particular scripture, uh, and try, if we will, have any hope of applying thousands of year old prophecy from Hebrews to our American lives today, that's quite a feat, we're going to have to understand some context. And so to that end... I am going to try and give you a 5,000-year history lesson in five minutes, okay, so you can understand the context of this, and hopefully you'll be able to do this. It's not too hard once you learn kind of the major divisions, so let's just go through it really quick, right? Five minutes, 5,000 years of history. Someone asks you, what did you do at church? We had a 5,000-year history lesson. It was fantastic in five minutes. All right. The Bible begins with creation. No, duh. Fantastic. Genesis, the book of Genesis, begins with the creation of the world by a good God and the fall of humanity that rebels against that good God. And the call of Abraham to be the father of many nations. And really, the book of Genesis is the story of this man's family, Abraham, who has a son, and his son's name was... Isaac, you can participate, and his son, or Abraham's grandson's name was Jacob. That's why God, in the Old Testament, is often, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he has 12 kids who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of his kids, named Joseph... Goes through years of horrible suffering but ends up second in command of the greatest empire in the world at the time, Egypt. And he saves both Egypt and his family who are in Canaan where Abram was sent from famine. And he says, family, why don't you come down and live with me in Egypt and feast on the goods? And they do. Exodus starts and Joseph has died and his family has died and everyone's forgotten the heroics of Joseph. And suddenly the Hebrew people, who are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, are a threat to maybe join Egypt's enemies and conquer them. So they say, we need to enslave them. So they enslave them. They start slaughtering their newborn boys. But one courageous mom puts her baby in a little basket and floats it down the river. And the princess of Egypt, one of the daughters of Pharaoh, finds it. His name is Moses. He's raised by a princess in Egypt. And he spends 40 years of his life becoming a really good Egyptian until one day he wants to identify with his own people, murders an Egyptian who is beating up on a Hebrew, flees into the hills of Midian where he gets married, becomes a shepherd for 40 years, and as an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd, God calls back by speaking through a burning bush and says, I want you to go back and lead my people out of slavery. And so he reluctantly does. And God does massive miracles and destroys, for the most part, the greatest empire on earth, brings his people out through the Red Sea to the bottom of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. He gives them plans for a tabernacle. He says, you're going to be my people, you're going to be my nation, and I'm going to sit in the center of you and live in your presence. And that's what happens. Then... Moses leads his people to the land that has been promised, the land where Abraham once lived. And they come to the edge of the land and they send spies in there. And the spies are like, it's full of bad people. And God's like, I know, you can defeat them. They're like, we don't think we can. And they become faithless. And they hide behind their kids. And they say, oh, our kids are going to die if we go over there. And he says, no, but you're going to die. And he says, Moses, I want you to lead them around the wilderness for the next 40 years until they all die, at least anyone over the age 21. And then I'm going to take their kids in. And they will be the faithful ones who conquer their land. And so everyone dies, including Moses. And his sidekick, not really, his right-hand man, Joshua, General Joshua, leads the Israelites across the Jordan, just as he had across the Red Sea through Moses, to conquer the promised land. And that's exactly what happens. Joshua leads a conquest. And after the land is conquered, the land is distributed, and the land is settled by the twi- 12, twa- twa- 12 tribes of Israel, they have become the people that God had promised in the place that he had promised, and he, as has promised, lived in their presence. But eventually Joshua dies, and so all the leaders die with him, and there's no leaders at all. And so everyone begins to do what's right in their own eyes. And so the people sin. And God is angry with their sin. And so he raises up a nation to punish his own nation, to spank his own nation. And when you get spanked, you cry. And so they cry out to God and say, oh, this is too hard. We're getting spanked too bad. And so he raises up a deliverer. They call them judges. And the judge comes and delivers them against the enemy that God had raised them up. And they rejoice until they go and sin again. And he raised up another nation, and they cry again, and it goes through this cycle. It goes through several judges, ungodly men like Samson, you've probably heard of young men like Gideon, and obscure men like Shamgar, you should look him up, he's a stud. Eventually, the people come to what many call is the final judge, perhaps the first prophet of sorts, Samuel, and they say, we want a king like everyone else. A leader like everyone else. And he says, no, you don't. Yes, we do. No, you don't. Yes, we do. And God says, give it to them. They're rejecting me, not you. And so the first king is anointed. His name is Saul. And he starts really good and ends really bad. And his kingdom, if you will, is given over to the greatest king named David, the killer of Goliath, a man after God's own heart. And he reigns. And he is told that you will have someone on the throne forever. Forever. And the first one to follow him is Solomon. And we saw the kinds of issues started great, ended poorly. And when Solomon dies, there's a rebellion, a civil war, and people don't want to follow his son, and so the kingdom is eventually divided. And you see all kinds of kings come and go over this divided nation. And the north is called Israel. That is the ten tribes of Israel. And the south is called Judah. And Judah is really Judah and Benjamin. So as you read the Bible, you have to kind of get the understanding, are we talking to Israel as in the whole nation, or Israel, the northern kingdom, or Judah, the the tribe, or Judah, the whole southern kingdom? Nineteen kings in the north, and nineteen kings, give or take in the south, come and go, most of them bad, some of them good. The minor prophets most of the prophets actually arise during this time. During this divided nation time. The writings of the minor prophets represent the last four centuries of the Old Testament. And it's the history that surrounds really almost beginning Hosea's just before the fall of the northern kingdom to a nation called Assyria. In about 722 B.C. And the History to the end, which is when Babylon comes and conquers the southern kingdom, including Assyria, in like 586, I think, B.C., 587. In Jerusalem, and the temple is destroyed. So that's the history. These prophets come, though. The prophets are men who are chosen by God to speak God's words to God's people. They often are the ones that say, Thus saith the Lord. The Lord saith this. The Lord said this. They are preachers at times, at times they are future tellers or predictors, and at times they're just watchmen, watching for the threats. In practical terms, they warned against poor political decisions. They warned against the dangers of idolatry, against false worship, against the worthlessness of religiosity. Figuratively, many of the prophets lived lives that were symbolic. They, they themselves embodied, if you will, an image and a message that God wanted to communicate. So they were watchmen and they were watched. And Hosea is one of the first prophets that was watched. Hosea is a unique prophet, and he's the first at this time, first of the minor and really the longest of the minor. I believe it's 14 chapters. uh, Most of them are much shorter. He was a northern prophet, which means he is prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel, probably from Samaria, which as you read your Bible, that would be the capital of the northern kingdom, as Jerusalem was of the south. All but two of the minor prophets really focus on the north, because really only the south existed during most of the time of the minor prophets. Amos and Hosea. Hosea began his prophetic calling, if you will, or starting to speak for the Lord at the end of the reign of a king named Jeroboam. Another time he's called Jeroboam II. The northern kingdom of Israel had turned their back on God. And when God actually had chosen Jeroboam to rule, he intended to establish him just as he had done for David, but King Jeroboam instead set up two golden calves, like the Israelites had done in the early days, and he instituted a pagan priesthood, forever cementing his legacy as the one who made Israel sin. Jeroboam sinned, and Jeroboam made Israel sin. And this is the point where Hosea comes in. Interestingly, after Jeroboam, there's about six kings that come and go very quickly. And at the end of that, Assyria overthrows them, as Hosea predicts. Assyria had been an interesting relationship. They're just north of Israel, the northern kingdom. And they had all kinds of tribute and issues, but they also had Israel appeal to Assyria for help at different times. And so the very people that they had asked for help are the people that come and conquer them, used by God to do that. God sends Hosea to prophecy to Israel in the last days before Assyria comes to conquer, which is why many scholars call him the deathbed prophet. The deathbed prophet. And why is that? Because most of his prophecy is full of death and wrath and destruction. Now the structure of Hosea, if you read it straight through, can be very confusing The first three chapters seem to stand alone. And then you have uh, what amounts to about 10 chapters, if you will. Well, 4 through about 13. And then the last part of Hosea. But really, it's 1 through 3 and 4 through 14. And there's not much introduction. But the very first words to Hosea, as you read in your Bible, says the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. It came to Hosea for Hosea, not even quite for Israel yet. It actually commands for Hosea to follow. And so the first three chapters are really these instructions that Hosea is given. And they serve as that idea of they're a watchman and they're watched. We watch Hosea and it reads more like a very shocking love story. I say shocking because the groom in the story is Hosea. His name means salvation. The bride in the story is named Gomer, which never name your child Gomer, right? That word now has been co-opted by culture to mean something entirely different. But ultimately, Gomer's name means completion. And so you have Hosea the groom, whose name means salvation, Gomer the bride, whose name means completion. And it's a story that represents this. Hosea represents The loving, faithful groom who saves, the unfaithful bride who is completely full of wickedness. That's the story. This is how it starts in the first nine verses. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of judah so we're talking about the southern kingdom and then in the days of jeroboam the son of joash the king of israel you have the two nations going on when the lord first spoke through hosea the lord said to hosea go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the lord So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. And the reference to Jezreel is that there's a valley of Jezreel of which there was an incredible battle that was bloody and ugly and a slaughter. So he says, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And the house of Jehu was the king at the time who had done that battle. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow, a bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name Tina. Nope, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. You start to feel God's disposition. He continues, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, her child, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. Not Charlie, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Ouch. So, very powerful, powerful story. Hosea, who was a real guy, is commanded by the one true God to marry an immoral woman. That she is real is very clear. Some would argue that it's an allegory, it's symbolic, it's a fictitious story meant to communicate a truth. I did not believe that. Whether or not she's a prostitute or not, I'm not sure. She's immoral in some way, either a prostitute, either just promiscuous, or a former adulterer. But for a time, she's faithful to Hosea. For a time, Hosea, after going and marrying this woman, they have three children together together, and God gives each of the children names, again, in order to uh, proclaim a particular message to Israel. And just taking the children's names, you realize the message thematically is this bloodshed, no mercy, not my people. Bloodshed, no mercy, not my people. This is very different than the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah goes and warns a very evil people to repent, and they do. It's actually the Assyrians. This is God's own people, and he's not saying repent. He's saying, blood, bath, no mercy, not my people. Well, we learn later that sometime after the birth of these three children, Gomer abandons her family and abandons her marriage. We don't have details of what happens, but we do know, which we'll see later, that she returns to her former life, indulging in sexual immorality as an adulteress or a prostitute. And we have to wonder, you should wonder, like, why? You have a husband who loves you, who pulled you out of the yuck of that Industry or whatever she was doing, and loved her and provided for her and cared for her. And they have children together, family, and she leaves. And in that moment, you see the ugliness and the irrationality of sin. And you understand why the Bible often calls sin something we're enslaved to because it doesn't make sense. There's something wrong on the inside, not just the out. Well, Hosea's experience with Gomer obviously intended to mirror God's experience with his people at this time. And it's incredibly noteworthy that God uses often a metaphor of marriage to describe his relationship to his people. Out of all the metaphors he could have used, and he uses others, but this one is most often used, Because a marriage is a very unique relationship. It is a covenant relationship that is intended to uphold the highest of priorities, the deepest of intimacies, and the greatest of loyalties. Priority, intimacy, loyalty. And what we see is because that covenant is broken, chapters 4 through 10 basically describe the sin and the coming wrath of a spurned husband. It begins in the very first verse of chapter 4, where it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with you. It sounds very British. He has a problem. They have an issue. They have a conflict. A controversy with inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love and there is no knowledge of God and that is not talking about head knowledge. That's talking about intimate relationship of knowing God. They have a lot, but they have no faithfulness. They have no love and they have no knowledge of God. He speaks more plainly later and he says this explicitly that I don't list the references for you. Saying to his people, My people play the whore. My people give themselves to whoring. The spirit of whoredom is within my people. Like Gomer, God's people are guilty of spiritual adultery. Adultery. And it's interesting that God uses that to describe the sin. It's many different sins, but ultimately he's talking about adultery and. In my view, what this is doing is giving us a little glimpse into the heart of God. Sin isn't just bad things and rules that you break. Sin grieves God like a husband who has been betrayed. There is a betrayal, there is a pain there. There are people in our church, and I'm sure there are people in our church who have had this in their family, that have experienced the ugliness and the pain of adultery. It is deep. It is painful. It is dark. It is ugly. And this is what God uses to describe the sin of his people. They have broken God's covenant. The covenant made by a very faithful husband, a protective husband, a perfect husband. They have rebelled against God's law that were designed to give them life and joy. And they have turned from what is a pure husband and sought after impure husbands in hope of finding fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and hope and all these things that they think they need that they already have in God. and god's expressed intentions towards their sin are quite shocking he begins very early on and he just says it plainly i'm going to uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand it's shocking to hear god say that i'm going to expose i'm going to punish It is shocking. It should be shocking. But what is a varsity level shocking beyond that is what God does in the future. Knowing how angry that sin makes him, knowing how hurt that sin makes him, what he chooses to do should shock us even more that we'll see. But before that, we have to continue to see, like, why in a 14 chapter prophecy are only three chapters dedicated to this beautiful thing, and yet you've got 11 or so chapters dedicated to God's disposition towards sin. It's not popular to talk about that, but God does. And what we see, and I'm going to go through them rather quickly, is that as the chapters roll on, he unapologetically, he very loudly and directly declares his intention to punish sin. The sin of his own people. He says, I'm going to change their glory into shame. He says, I'm going to pour out my wrath like water, which some translations would say like a flood. I'm going to discipline them. They have double iniquity. He further says, I'm going to break down their altars and destroy their pillars, speaking about all the false idols that have been built. He says, more relationally, I'm going to drive them out of my house. He says, I'm going to destroy their fortresses, which is really their cities and their protections. He says, I'm going to depart from them. Woe to them. And when the Bible says woe, it's an expression of sadness and sorrow for something that is impossible to avoid. Woe to them when I depart from them because I'm going to. It's a dark picture. Because of their false hearts, their empty covenants and oaths, they have to bear their guilt woe to them for they have strayed from me that's the problem they have strayed not that they've done this 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 they have strayed relationally from me destruction to them for they have rebelled against me i would redeem them but they speak lies against me which is an interesting thing to think about they're talking about god they're talking to god and they're not talking truthfully to god you talk about unfaithfulness in a marriage unfaithfulness in terms of adultery Israel is pretending to be married to God. Israel is talking the talk. Israel is going through the motions, but they ultimately are incredibly unfaithful. And that's one of the things that upsets God the most. Pretend faithfulness. According to Hosea, they had religion, but whatever religion they had, it was false and empty. He even says it plainly I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God. That's not head knowledge. That's intimate relationship, communion with God, rather than burnt offerings. You're, you're going through the offerings that atone for sin, but you're not actually doing it with a full heart. You're doing it because you think mechanically that somehow protects the relationship. It's interesting what he says here, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Hold on to Adam there. Put down the Shelf. There they dealt faithless, faithlessly with me. They have not obeyed my word. They, as Jesus often says, honor God with their lips, but their fa- hearts are far from them. But that doesn't stop them from crying out to Him. Isn't that interesting? They cry, they just don't cry from their heart. They wail upon their beds all day. Which is an interesting thing to think about in terms of empty religion, empty faith, empty relationship and yet thinking I have some kind of relationship with God. They they pray to God. They cry out to God. They plead to God and yet it's almost as if they know they have spiritual needs and yet they refuse to actually turn to God to satisfy them in a genuine way. I find that Hosea echoes Ecclesiastes a little bit. If you were with us several months ago, we went through Ecclesiastes, and one of the refrains of Ecclesiastes was, It's chasing after the wind. Right? We called the series Empty because Solomon talked about this emptiness it had that everybody has, and he went and said, How can I try and satisfy this emptiness? And he did not withhold anything from himself. Whether it was. Food or drink or sexuality, success or regard, whatever. He filled it all. In the end he said it's all meaningless and anyone who's trying to find satisfaction and security and hope that lasts into eternity is chasing after the wind. And we hear the same thing in Hosea. For they sow the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. They're not looking to God. They're looking to everything else in creation, even their own religious practices, to save themselves. The core issue is idolatry. That's what they call it. right? Spiritual adultery is idolatry. Idolatry is worshipping something else in place of God. Looking to find security and hope and joy and meaning and identity in something other than God. Something else is, has that supreme position other than God. In the Old Testament it was easy to see. It was obvious. You're worshipping this statue thing. Hosea says that. My people inquire of a piece of wood. It's like, God's kind of funny. He's like, they're talking to wood. And their walking staffs give them oracles. Think about that. What's that staff? Like, I'm supposed to do what? I mean, he, he's like, this is ridiculous. They're talking to things that I created that don't have tongues and, and mouths and person- they don't. They're nothing. It's stuff. And he calls it a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. He doesn't mince words. Our idols are not made of gold and silver like they did back then, but they lead us to just as much destruction. Our idols today sound much more pleasant. Things like our jobs, success, money, sexuality, that might be as justifiable one, but stuff like family, marriage, achievement. There's all kinds of different idols that we worship, that we basically give our best to and expect to find total satisfaction. Ours aren't wood and silver and gold, but they're just as destructive. Israel is actually full of spirituality, which is one of the biggest problems in the Pacific Northwest. There's tons of spiritual people, but they're all not worshiping the one true God. Through Hosea, here's the hard part. This prophecy is not God putting his people on trial. This prophecy is a picture of God the judge proclaiming sentence. And the sentence is death to his own people. Now, The bulk of Hosea speaks about God's holiness. His intoleration, his inability to to tolerate sin of any kind. It speaks of his hatred towards sin. I mean, if you don't read Hosea, I'm like, God is serious about sin. He doesn't like sin. He doesn't think it's something we can just manage. It's not something we can play with. It is evil and destructive. People need to repent, not just because it's right, but because it is the only path to life. But even as that happens, even as it's like the bulk of Hosea is just this, oh, yuckiness, kind of like this. Oh, yeah, in the center, guess what? In the center is the picture of God's deep compassion and love towards sinners, Now, it doesn't seem like those would go together. And people might try to separate those. Oh, let's just take God's wrath and not talk about it anymore. Let's just talk about God's love. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, that the love of God means very little apart from His wrath. The love of God is a worldly sentiment, a simple affection, something that is just so superficial apart from the holiness of God. But when you truly understand unholiness, let's make it a little more personal. When you truly understand your unholiness, your rebellion, your brokenness, your ugliness, your whoredom, oh, oh, wait, hold on, that's too strong of language. You're calling me an adulterer? I bet there are times when we can think of somebody who we think is that bad. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I know that person. They're rebellious. I mean, they have screwed up so many things. They have hurt so many people. That ugly, yucky thing. I mean, I, it would be hard for me to love them. Pfft, God... No way, like mate. that's a. That person is who you should think yourself to be. If you are convinced or not convinced that you're the most sinful person in the room, you don't get it. But when you do see that, when you do, and I don't, I don't want us to dwell there, but I think we have to start there. Because when you start there, you know what that does to God's love? Whoa! God loves me that much. It magnifies the grace and the mercy and the love of God in a way nothing else can. Let me prove it to you. If we go back to Hosea chapter three, we know the story in the very beginning, right? Where Hosea marries, and then Gomer disappears, it seems. God comes back to Hosea in chapter three, and says, "The Lord send me. Go again. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man as an adulteress. Go again. Go get your wife. Go get your wife who abandoned you. Go get your wife who betrayed you. Go get your wife who hurt you and your family. Don't just go rescue her. Go love a woman again. Even, here it goes, as the Lord loves his children of Israel. As the Lord loves you. See, if you don't see yourself that way, this doesn't hit you. Though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. So what does Hosea do? So I bought her. He buys his own bride. Can you imagine him going into the marketplace? The shame of that. The embarrassment of that. Whether he wants to do it or not isn't even revealed. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and leketh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. I will be faithful to you. You're going to be faithful, and I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to love you, whether you want to be loved or not. Do you understand that's what God says to us? Because we tell him by our actions and our attitudes, I don't really want, I don't need your love. I'm going to love you. Don't our children do that? I don't want your love. I'm going to love you. You're not going to get rid of my love. And that love invades us and that love changes us. Throughout this first three chapters, he, he gives us a picture of love that the world doesn't know and I don't think we, I know very well either because it's not of this world. Throughout this deathbed prophecy, if you will, full of death, there is this subtle sprinkling of redemptive promise throughout. And even from the very beginning, right, he gives his kids these horrible names. Bloodshed. No mercy. Not my people. Like, oh. But then even right after that, what does he say? Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it was said, because I just said it, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. There's a promise in there. It's not always going to be like this. This isn't the end of the story. Though they are adulterers, he promises One day in Hosea 2, I'm going to betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, right? I'm going to marry you. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, not mind, but heart. You shall know I love you. You shall feel I love you. See, even as God declares his correction of his people, he is expressing his great affection for us. And he calls at the end and throughout, return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. How many of us here can say that? Dare I say all of us? And what does he promise? I'm gonna heal your apostasy. I'm gonna love you freely, for my anger has turned from them. Now, as Hosea foretold, Assyria did come shortly after this prophecy. And they did destroy Israel in the kingdom of Israel. God's threat of punishment couldn't be avoided. They had ignored God too long and too much. But we see in the New Testament that even though God's people, Israel, literally were destroyed, God's actual people was not, right? Paul quotes Hosea. And said, Those who are not my people, I will call my people, right? That's coming from Hosea. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. As Paul talks about the Gentiles and the Jews coming together and this people that would be saved, there was hope to be found. Even though Israel had failed, right? Just like Adam did. They had broken Adam's covenant. What is Christ called? The second or last Adam? The one who proved faithful, the true Israelite who was faithful, through which God would gather a people who would be saved by faith, just like Abraham. It may surprise you to know that Jesus is in Hosea very explicitly. It's like a where's Waldo? Like, oh, there he is, right? You don't have to try that hard, you just have to read carefully. He's there in the beginning, he's there in the middle, and he is there in the end. In the very beginning, in the 11th verse, there's hints of someone that will come to restore this people that's been destroyed. It said, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Oh, we're going to bring them together into one people? And they shall appoint themselves one leader. There is a leader to come who will unite all people together. And that leader is the Messiah. That leader was Jesus. That leader was the one Savior who would redeem his beloved. Several times Hosea speaks of the moment of history that is yet to come. Hosea 6.2 says, Let us return to the Lord. What's happened? He has torn us, which they were torn, that he might heal us. He has struck us down that he would bind us up. And then it gets really saucy. After two days, He's going to revive us. And on the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. What? What could He be talking about? Right? It's giving us this picture of what is to come. This beautiful picture of being struck down and then yet raised up. And even though He strikes down, He promises to raise. He strikes down. His wrath... Do you understand that Christ on the cross was not killed by the Romans, not killed by the Jews, not killed by the Gentiles. He was killed by God. His wrath was poured out on His Son for us. Hosea points to it again. I shall ransom them. I will pay the price from the power of Sheol, the grave. I shall redeem them from death. And you've heard Paul quote this in 1 Corinthians 15: Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's from Hosea, promising the resurrection of Christ. God is calling to all of us, and He's calling us to Christ through Hosea. Christ has paid the penalty for those who repent and believe, for those who acknowledge that they are in need of a Savior, acknowledge that they are actually poor in spirit, acknowledge they are unable to save themselves and believe that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for their sins, that He has stood in their place, faced the wrath that they couldn't, that they might have new life. We are the ones who deserve death, and yet Jesus was the one who loved us by dying in our place. You know that phrase, God is love? That's from the Bible. We use it a lot when we like to talk about God's affection and and, and God's mercy and all these things, which is true. But it's interesting if we read the context of that verse, how God says His love is to be defined. It's not that God is just loving, though He is His love was made manifest in a particular way. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Yes, we should, for love is from God. I believe that. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I agree. And anyone who doesn't love does not know God. That's right, because God is love, everybody. And this, in this, the love of God was made manifest, was made seen, was made visible was made tangible that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Yes, right. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Absolutely. But you know what it also said? In this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he has loved us. Isn't that Hosea? Not that we have loved God but that he has loved us and done what? He has sent his son Not just to be, but to die. The propitiation for our sins. That's a very big word. And it means appeasing God's wrath. Or a better image I've always appreciated, a wrath sponge. Because he takes God's wrath and he gives us his righteousness. He becomes the wrath sponge for our sins. That's love. In love, as Hosea had told Israel, Jesus was the one who was actually torn. We weren't. And Jesus is the one who ensured that we could be healed by him being torn to pieces. He was struck down that we might be raised. And without doubt, you know what? Oftentimes I read Hosea, especially husbands are like, that's right. I'm going to love like Hosea. And I think there are certainly some things to learn from Hosea about loving, about what it means to be faithful and what it means to be true and and sacrificial and all those things. But I would probably argue that we learn much more from Gomer. Because even if Hosea is who we may and should aspire to be, Gomer is who we actually are. Unfaithful and unlovable. And I know I've pushed this hard, but Hosea does. We must all come to the place where we realize the sinfulness of our sin. God's holiness demands that he doesn't take sin lightly. He hates it, and if we love God, so will we. He's not impressed by our empty religious practices, nor pleased with our unfulfilled covenants or apathetic attempts at godliness. But our unholiness, when we come face to face with that, makes the love of God that much more beautiful and radical and glorious. In truth, we're all a bunch of gomers. And Jesus is the greater Hosea. The Hosea that is pictured through this imperfect man. The Hosea that chases us down. Not just once, but again and again and again. And he brings us home. He brings us to himself. Jesus is the greater Hosea because Hosea was godly. He he did go. He did obey God's command whether he felt like it or not. But Jesus was God. And Hosea, he did embrace and experience the shame of of his bride's sin. But guess what? Jesus took on the shame and sin of the entire world. Hosea paid money to redeem his life. You know what Jesus paid? His life. To redeem a people for his own possession. Hosea was told to love. And again, who knows if he really wanted to. If he's anything like Jonah, he probably didn't. Jesus desired it more than anything. He went to the cross for you because he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And he knows everything that you have done. He knows the adulterer that you are that you don't want to imagine that you actually are. And yet he loves you. This is why John can tell us in the beginning of his epistle he says in 1 John 2, I tell you this, and I'm writing these things so you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate. If anyone finds themselves being a gomer, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. He's standing by the Father. And as you sin, and he's your bell, you know what he's saying? I love him. I covered that. I covered that. I covered that. It's your sins of yesterday, your sins of today, and your sins of tomorrow. And when you see that, when you see that he is the propitiation for your sins, not just one sin, but all your sins, my hope is that you understand completely the love of God. And when you're called to repent, you hear that differently. Because repent and believe sounds kind of impersonal. But Hosea put some intimacy into it. And so instead of repent and believe, what if it was return and come to me? Return and let me love you. I know what you've done. I know where you've been. You are more sinful than you'd ever admit, but you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. Return and come to me. That's the book of Hosea, which is a picture of the love of our God. We've got 11 more to go. Let's see how we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for how you love us. It's hard to admit how weak and broken we are, Lord. I think it'd be easier to pretend we're Hosea. But in truth, Lord, we we know we are a gomer. We know we fall short. But I take such peace and comfort knowing that you know that too that, Lord, you planned for our failure. You planned for our wandering. You planned for our betrayal. And you simply say, turn and know my love. I pray we will know your love more deeply, Lord, that we see our sin more clearly, but we'll lo- know your love more deeply, and that your love will overpower all fears we might have. Thank you for your invitation to come to us. Come to you, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.